Welcome to a very special episode of Let's Talk Law Enforcement. And I am very fortunate to have a uh, a woman that I can say I looked up to uh, 19 years at Metropolitan Police Department, but I don't even think she knew I existed because I stayed out of the way, as they call it. But she used to come to all our shooting scenes and scenes, and I'm like, man, I got to talk to her one day because... She, she, she did pretty good for herself. So I want you to introduce yourself again, Chanel Dickinson, former assistant chief, uh, Metropolitan Police Department. Thank you so much, Kenny, for having me. And I do remember you, but not for getting in trouble. Um, definitely <laughs> right. not that. Um, as you stated, my name is Chanel Dickerson. I retired as an assistant chief of police from DC Police Department in June of 2022. So I appreciate the opportunity for you to interview me, for us to have a relevant conversation about law enforcement. And I thank you for that. So, team, I'm going to jump right into this. Um, we we talked a little bit about it in the, uh, you know, pre-briefing the other day. But what did you see? Oh, let me put it this way. You you were a chief. You were, you were up there. You had to review some of these things. What did you see as far as the... Uh, the Memphis incident in, in your eyes? Um, the, the, the Memphis incident was heartbreaking. It was a shock of consciousness for anyone, a shock of conscience for anyone that saw the, the video. I didn't look at it as a training issue. It was a criminal act, period. And when I think about at my law enforcement agency, the things that we have in place, and I can assume that Memphis probably had these things in place, but there is supervisory accountability for every arrest. And what I saw in Memphis, it did not seem like that was the first time those officers did an act like that. It's just the first time that someone probably died from it. Right. Right. Yeah, we, we said the same thing. Um, we watched it in our roll call. And uh, it it was hard to watch because, like I said, it's in law enforcement. It's some hands on, and it is a contact sport. There's a tap out time. Is what we call you know the whistle time. Whistle, blow the whistle. It's over. Handcuffs come on. It's over. Right. That's normally how it goes or should go. So for us, even looking at that and. Um, in roll call, you know, in our squad roll call that night, it, it was tough because everybody was silent because nobody knew exactly what to say or what you know exactly what what could you say, what could you say? Now it's like okay, we we got to go back out and we got to deal with another load from people, right? And rightfully so, but from people who are already on the edge of. I hate police. Police don't do this. They never ran, you know, the whole nine yards that you hear pretty much every day. So it was, it was tough on both sides. And I I'll be honest that night, we didn't even make traffic stops. And again, not because, not because we were afraid to, it was just, you know what, we're going to give this some, some, you know, give it time to cool because you didn't want anybody thinking that, um, 
unfortunately, that's what might happen to them. You know what I mean? It's, it was just a bad for law enforcement in general. One hundred. No, no, I, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Um, what happens with incidents like this, it's hard for police chiefs and mayors and county exec or city managers to come forward and say that this does not represent our police department. When you keep having these incidents, then people are going to believe that there are more bad cops than good cops. And you and I know different. We know that we work with people who put on the badge and the uniform, you know, every day who come to do good in their community. But we'll have, we're having this too frequently. And I just think that we have a lack of accountability not only internally in the police department, but we also have it externally. I think that everyone needs to be held accountable for their part. Um, it has tarnished the badge of law enforcement. And here we are again, like trying to dig our way right. out of that bad incident. Right, exactly. And that's, just, that's the same thing we said, you know, same, we echoed the same thing. And I think they mentioned something that it hasn't been confirmed, but it was more like this thing was a this was a personal kind of attack and that made it worse. So it was like, you know, we, we were looking at the video and we didn't know anything about the personal, you know, connection between the officer and the um, and the victim. But it was like, man, you, you stopped the guy, you put him out the car, you put him out the car. What do what do you even pull them out the car for? So it was a lot of key things for us that we were, you know, and I'm not laughing at the situation, but it was like, whoa, you know, we, we were we started counting things like, hold up, one, two, three, four, like how many things have you violated up until this point where now this man is on the ground and you guys stood him up and then hit him and beat him again. Um so for us, yeah, they Every minute of time they get, um, we have no problem with them getting getting that time, not at all, N at all, not at all. I mean, so be it, because that, like I said, we we're going to be suffering and dealing with that for a very very long time. You know, the backlash to that. No, uh, I, I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. Um, I did hear, you know, the rumors that it was something personal. I think because he was savagely beaten that it just looks like that. You know, I haven't heard of any confirmation right. of that, but re regardless, um, they tarnish their badge, like the oath that they were sworn. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you watch parts of um, Tyree Nichols' funeral, but um, Reverend Sharpton said something that was so profound to me when he talked about that they were in Memphis and it was 55 years ago that Dr. Martin Luther King was there um, advocating for government workers, black government workers, right? And so that's how those police officers was able to hold the jobs that they were holding is because of that fight, because of the right. fight for so many people that died to give us the right to hold certain positions. And then this is what you do with it. Right. Yeah, I understand. It, it is uh it's bad. It's it's a bad look, and it's going to take us a while to um, dig out from that. Um, but but speaking of that, or, or or speaking in general, your career, I guess human services, services were recruitment. Did you deal with that at all? 
No, I did not. Okay. But you got to see, I guess, the caliber of trainees and recruits that we got in, right? No, I, I did get to see them, but I was not di directly responsible for the processing of those people or the selection of people okay. that became police officers. Okay. Because I, I will say this, uh, you know, you were there before me. I came in what, 2002? 2002, right? So you know this. When we came in academy, we had to hit the wall, right? By your lead. Yeah. We had to respect, right? For the senior yeah. officers, senior class, the you know, the instructors, everything. Um, all and again, I'm not going to have correlation with what's going on, but there was discipline. There was much more discipline in departments and training and as far as, in my opinion, in academies. Like, you had to prove that you really wanted this. You you, you remember that phrase, 1033, right? And every, everybody out that gym all the way down to the academy fence, right? Yes. And back. Yeah. And you better not be the last one. Yes. So you know what I'm saying. We it was we had a different, I don't say mindset, but it was like, you really want this badge, you're gonna have to earn it. You're gonna have to show me that you're gonna quit on a rainy day. You're not gonna be late on a rainy day. So, you know, that affects somebody else. You're gonna show up day in and day out and show me that you actually want this job. And I just think. Again, in my opinion, a lot of the academies have cut down on standards and recruitment standards where I'm not saying with the drug use and all, because I think everybody deserves a second chance or something, but just the whole, you know, this this is supposed to be paramilitary organizations that we have. And I, I know society has changed a bit, but there were there were different standards. And if you couldn't cut it, and you know what I mean, the ring, you know, you couldn't cut that two minutes in that ring. I mean, okay, maybe this job isn't for you. And it's not all physical, but it was you 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 earned that badge and you took pride in getting that badge. And you know what I'm saying about that. You took pride in getting that badge. You know, yeah. you took pride in working in 70. You took pride in working in 60. Because you could. You know, you work in six or seven, do you work anyway? Oh, no, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, yes. That's absolutely correct. Um, I, I just, I don't know what happened um, that, that changed the, the standards. I think that police departments are getting away from the paramilitary, the kind of law and order um, police department. Right. And I'm not saying that it's all bad because um, if I look at when I came on, that I was told to have an abortion or I'll be fired. I'm mm, hoping okay. that some female officer now will come on the job and not be told that same right. thing. Yeah, Although absolutely. it was illegal then um, for <laughs> right. someone to tell me that. Right. But so, you know, when you just look at that, some things um, needed to change. Yeah. Like I have my feelings on um, my perspective on the college credits, I do not believe that just because you have a college degree or 60 college credits, it makes you a better police officer. That has not mm. been proven to me, but I do understand that some agencies have that standard and I'm not the person to make that decision. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. I it, I don't think it makes a uh, better police officer in my, my opinion. I mean, it hasn't been proven to me. To me, I, I'll take that guy who comes from 
I'm not gonna say necessarily the hood, but that that guy that comes in, it's like, hey, I've been through some things and I'm thankful to have this job. You know what I mean? I'm thankful to to actually want to get out here and um that I was given the opportunity that I can get out here and and actually give back to, you know, people in my in my community. And I just think that's where a lot of departments went wrong at. You know, we started going for the high credit score. You know, that's like, oh, you don't have a 650 or 700, we can't hire you. And to be honest, that doesn't make a great police officer. Not at all. Especially no. in six and seven, you know what I mean? Six, seven, and even one D. Hey, all over there, all over DC. So, or, you know, all over the country. So, you know, it, I guess what I'm going to get to is in your opinion, right? All right. You chief of a new department, they just formed. Um, what would be your standards? What What would you do to change what, what's going on out here for, for, you know, between rank and file management, which is pretty most of the times bad. And then the citizens that, you know, that that rely on us every day well the first thing that i would do i would want to have um listening sessions with the men and women inside the agency and the community because i need to understand like their concerns and what's going on and i know that people are calling for police reform and they right. want to hold police departments accountable but I want to hold community accountable as well, because yeah. somewhere we got that misconception that a law enforcement agency is the end all be all to solving crime. Well, not solving crime, but preventing crime. Right. Because right. we can't solve the crime, but we still need the community's help in solving crime as well. But it's going to take that public private partnership, because what I have seen in the nation's capital that people rely on the police department to prevent it and to solve it. And people right. are not getting involved in owning their community. Like many years ago, people had an invested interest in their community. And it was like, this is not happening in my community. But officer well-being, that's another thing that's top of my list. And I don't believe in um, the smoke and mirrors for a lack of a better word right now, but where we just present this idea that we're doing this officer well-being, health and well-being um, bureau or division, I want to see the, the metrics with that, right? How are we helping the officers that's boots on the ground, that's dealing with trauma every day that they go to work? We see some right. of the most horrific things that happens in a person's life. And we expect the officer who is a human being to come into the locker room and when they get dressed in their uniform and close that locker, to go out on the street, they leaving all of their personal things behind, all the things that they have going on at home. And I just think that we have to do a better job at taking care of the men and women who do this job every day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um you you know that the 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 I guess the word was for us, um, rank and file was like, you know, the clinic is like, who's gonna go to the clinic? You you need to go to the clinic. And it's like Nobody wanted to hear that because for us, that meant you were going to get put on light duty. Or if you tell one of those uh, people at the clinic that you're not feeling well and you're not, you know, dealing with stressors, they're going to take your badge and gun. 
And that was the big fear. And I, I know management knew the situation and how things would go there. But for us, it was just, we, I can't say fear to go there, but I can tell you in my shooting, both of my shootings, I dread it because, you know, it was no matter what you feel in right after the shooting, you need to go to the clinic right now. Right? And it's like, well, wait a minute. I can, I can barely get a, thought out but no you need to go to clinic right now and it's like mm, okay right so you go to the clinic and you're talking and it's like you're not even in your right mind to even explain what happened or or you shouldn't have right after you know a traumatic event like that because you're still processing it right i know that for sure so i think a lot of things can change with that or should change and it needs to be where officers can talk, you know, because we had the one person that Barb, you know, remember on the other side of EAP, but if he wasn't available, we were, we were short. And a lot of times, a lot of officers were going in locker room and shed tears and you didn't know what to do. You didn't know what to say. Right. And a lot of times you go home and you're like, man, can I do this job tomorrow? And you go back out and do the same thing over and over. And like said, it does build up. It builds up and builds up and builds up until finally you snap or, or something, you know, breaks you. And then you're out there acting a fool on the street because of some stresses that you had built up that you never got help for. So, yeah, I do applaud that part where you say we need help. You know, officers do need help because, um, Management again. I'm not. I'm not knocking MPD because I love the agency and I love some of the things and I love the training and I had some great supervisors and great officers. But it it, it at times it, it just seemed like you were that you were that number. You just you just that number. You get out there and you answer those calls, and um, that was it. That was it for us. You know. Yeah. So I, good for you. Yeah, I, I I know, and and I I take responsibility for that along with my other colleagues because what happens, and it's definitely no excuse at all, is it's just first of all, policing is not an easy job, and most people would not do it, and right. so it's not just the boots on the ground, but it is a first line supervisor to the mid level managers to the command and the executive staff. Like everyone is wearing the the stress of being responsible for public safety. And all you want to do is keep a a person in the community from being victimized, right? right? You want them to not experience, have a traumatic experience, but in turn, we often forget about the person who's running from call to call. That's why it's so important to me that we need to change police culture to where people believe officers believe that it's okay to say, I need to go talk to someone today, whether it's a different employee assistance program than the one that, that I came up on, but we need something where there's, if there's not monthly check-ins it's quarterly check-ins that you have an hour to sit with someone and you can go sit with them and not say anything if you don't want to, but that's your hour. Right. And when you have that hour, consistently, maybe one day you will share what's happening with you. But we we have to do a better job of that because I offered that to the detectives that work with me under um, the Youth and Family Services Division because they investigated crimes against children. 
And it was horrific things that happened to young people in the District of Columbia, probably like most major cities, but in D.C. particularly, that I didn't want them to have to see that every day and then go home. And how would they process? I didn't want people self-medicating. And that's another issue that we have to worry about in law enforcement. And, and, And people need to look at leaders in law enforcement need to look at how many DUIs are officers getting. Like, are they getting arrested or domestic violence incidents? Like, we really have to try to help them. And what I took on personally as a first-line supervisor and as I moved through the rank, it was my job to make sure that you were okay. Like, especially as the first-line supervisor, right? To make sure that you put in leave for the special occasions that you wanted to be off for. Like, all of those things to see that you were not as talkative today as you were you know, last week or you normally are, right? I'm right. supposed to be in tune with those things and make sure you're okay. But sometimes we're in this rat race that everyone is just running from one thing to the next thing that we don't stop to say, like, what's happening with you? Exactly. And that's uh, that's a that's a huge problem. And also one of the issues you hit it on the nose when you're like, you're a first line supervisor and you check. Well, Again, I'm not going to knock younger supervisors. I'm not going to do that. But what I will say is a lot of those supervisors like you don't don't exist anymore. And you know what I mean by that. They, It's uh, you unfit for duty. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Can, don't hit don't hit anybody with that. Like, yeah. talk to this guy first. Like, oh, wait, let's talk to him. It's you know, everything became such a liability. And I get it. I understand. But let me talk to this person um, first. Let me see what's going on. If he, why he wants to leave, you know, or whatever. We we kind of lost that ability to talk to officers, I think, because a lot of the senior people like you did move up in the ranks and then y'all were gone. And then, you know, again, no offense, but we would get three, four, five-year cat. Um, I'm not gonna say cat. We had one of those ten-year captain, but a five-year sergeant with uh no experience. And again, not the book level part of it, but the whole how do you deal with people? How do you deal with people? You know what I mean? Just the simple things. To you know, before we went 1099 on every every you know every cruise, it was like a lot of people. Wanted to ride together, right? That was cool. You had some supervisors that were like, no, y'all can't ride together today. Why? They're productive when they ride together. They they do good work. You know, so it was little things like that that you noticed. And it was like, these guys, like, make it, make it fun again. And we stopped doing it. I believe that's, that's huge. We stopped making uh, police work fun. Because it all came down to numbers, calls for service, and we have to be right here at this time for this person, or you know we're we're, we're not good. You know we have to respond to this accident in three seconds for a person to exchange information. When honestly, we know people can exchange information on their own. So and you know that fell into that number one thing too of. We handle calls that I know for sure other jurisdictions go, that's not a police issue. So, you know, to me, that was a lot, that workload of 
every single call. You know, dispatcher's like, I know it's not a police matter, but we got to send you anyway. Why, dispatcher? Why? You can't question it because then your supervisor will come over to hand, just respond to the call. Well, you're my supervisor. Can you call communications and ask them why we, we responded to this type of call? So you know what I'm saying about that. And I don't know if that ever got to your level, but we wish it would have. You know what I well, mean? well like it that. eventually um, got to our level because now at the, the agency, there's calls that um, the officers there do not take anymore. And it oh, took us okay. a long time to get there. And I think what happened <laughs> okay. was that we conditioned ourselves that we would take every call. Because when someone called 911, you could get the police department and the fire department and because we were always at work and mm -hmm. every other agency was, you were leaving a message or sending an email, but the police would respond out. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we did consistently there. And certain things are, are not police matters. And, and what we've seen over the years is police have been called into interactions and then it escalates out of control. And then you look back at it and say an officer should have never been sent to that call Initially. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And that that is that was huge. That was huge for us. Cause we, you know, we would listen over the over the air, wait for your supervisor to go, nah, don't we not send anybody to that. But to be honest, we never got this. Like, yeah, just respond. Why? Yeah. Why am I responding to this call? You know what I mean? So that was huge for us. And then I gotta ask you this, because I, I I told you I gotta bring this up. Why do officers sit on these ten-hour details? See that they hate the officers. Absolutely, is one that's maybe a year away from retirement, and or one that just has no drive whatsoever. What what is up with the those static details? We hated them. We hated them. Well, I None am assuming. Guys that you're talking about details in areas where there was a propensity um, for violence, right? I'm assuming those yes. are the areas in the detail, mm -hmm. details that you're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. As the primary law enforcement agency in the District of Columbia, like we are responsible, part of, we're a subsector that's responsible for public safety, right? And so if we know that if there's no officer there that violence is going to occur, then we have a responsibility to make sure that someone's there. However, what the problem is with that is that law enforcement only cannot, I said it before, like prevent or solve the root causes for crime. And when you think about the root causes for crime is, is poverty, education, you know, lack of economic advantage, advancement. Um, in an area, right? But I think as a police department, we could do something better with it. Why would you get the detail for 10 hours, right? And so that, right. even if we have to have that detail there, right, for the 10-hour shift, why didn't we break the detail up till we got several people only set there for a couple of hours? Yeah. yeah. Why that didn't someone, like yeah, why didn't <laughs> someone and 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 I and I take responsibility of, of being an assistant chief of patrol for like three and a half years, right? Mm -hmm. But you expect that when you give directions, 
that it's passed down through each level on the job. And I think what happened is that sometimes we have a disconnect between the boots on the ground and people in my position. Because we forget what it's like to be the officer that's answering the 911 calls. We forget what it's like to sit in a cruiser for 10 hours at one location. Because if we did not forget that, then we would have um, broken the shift down, two or three people, whatever we decided to do, and to keep a record of who got what detail which day so the same person wouldn't get it again. Because you break someone's spirit you demoralize them for every day they come to work. They know they're going to have this detail for 10 hours. But more importantly, did we explain to you why you were on the detail? Probably not. That's nope. one of the biggest problems that if I came to you and told you that we were having this problem in this area and then ask you for possible solutions, you patrol that beat every day. You know the players, you know the community members, right? So you could help me devise a plan to be able to combat whatever it is going on in that area. Instead of me just saying the answer is put a car there for 10 hours. That is not sustainable and is not going to always prevent crime from happening because we have had crime happen when an officer is there. But when the community wants answers from the police department and we're able to say that an officer was there, then the community looked to other resources to combat violence instead of just focusing on the police. Right. I, I do understand that part of it. I do, because I, I like, I, you know, we talked about, I know it's two sides to, you know, the questions that I asked you, but it, it just seemed like that between that and I, I never forget like my first, I want to say my first month or two in 70, little detail every day, right? <laughs> every, I kid you not. I was a great, what they call greatest South. I was in greatest Southeast every day for like eight hours. Um, and when I say that was like a eye opener to me, because I'm, I'm like, wow, well, what are we doing? What, yeah, well, we got to go to the hospital. Why? Um, the guy got his stomach started hurting. Right. I'm like, okay. And then you get used to it, right? And you get used to it. And then it has become that also has become a culture thing where, you know, the bad and the bad guys know, hey, listen, I I don't feel like going to jail right now. I'm gonna go to the hospital and sit up in a bed and eat. Now again, I know it's a liability thing, but and and again, I'm speaking for because a lot of DC um officers you know, ask me to ask you what was it anything could be done with these hospital details? Well, what happened with the hospital details, that is something that I must say that was like a thorn in my side. <laughs> um, it it really talking? was because there was a lot of manpower um, spent on hospital details. And we had Department of Corrections that was supposed to come in and take over at a certain time. And that's where I am for everyone has to be held accountable in this system. It can't just be the police because what happens is we can't ever drop the ball. Like we we don't have the luxury of ever dropping the ball. Like we have to, to stay there when it's someone else's responsibility and when they don't show up. Yep. 
Yep. And and that's the problem I have with with the hospital details. Department of Corrections were supposed to come and take over. Um, they did hire some triage nurses for like the minor stomach aches or things like that that would happen that a nurse could actually look at them um, down at um, central cell block and then decide if they needed to go to the hospital or not. But it was something with that system that was broken and it would take more than just the police department to fix that problem. Uh, it, but it was it, a huge was problem. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, so it's and then that was a question too, right? It was like, did you ever look at the numbers and see how many, because you got the reports every night, every day. Did you see how many officers were on hospital details throughout like the day and night? As, oh, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> yes, because the Command Information Center kept track of all of the hospital details. That's why it was in my face. Like, there's no way I could miss that number. <laughs> right, right. Um, from, from being there. But when you're talking about a head of another D.C. government agency, doing their part. And perhaps, you know, everyone is a short manpower. Maybe that was the issue. But I remember um, back in the day when D.C. General was still open and we had the strong room at D.C. General. So you had a facility where officers were assigned there. And that's all you would have to do is go and drop them off yeah, at the hospital. And it was yeah. officers there to take care of everything. And then when they were released, you would go back and pick them up. And wow. we need that system back. Um, in D.C. because we are wasting a lot of hours that officers could be out, you know, helping the community, answering calls for service, mm -hmm. preventing crime from happening to people instead of being inside of a hospital. Oh, who you tell? I, I never forget. I went to, uh, where did we go? We went to Greatest Southeast one night. And when I say it had every room, I kid you not, had two officers in it. Yeah, like you know, back in the back, every every emergency room back there had two officers. I know I counted because I never forget this. Sixty was back there, seventy, four D. I don't know how four D got across the bridge on it, but they were all back there, and it was one D. He would just look at that and go, "Dude, it's like ten officers out of service." You know what I mean for for the, for your whole department because this guy knew, yeah, I'm going to jail, so now my stomach hurts. And that used to, we knew it was nothing we could do, but it was just like, man, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I took a, I took a prisoner to surgery one night over, um, they had to call in a specialist because her wisdom tooth needed to be pulled. Now, again, her tooth, I'm sure, was bad before she got arrested, but she decided to and I spent a whole eight hours over at the hospital while they called in a specialist to fix a wisdom tooth. I know, like, I never forget that. And I'm not saying people don't need treatment or, you know, humane uh, things need to happen or when somebody gets locked up, but it's just like, are you kidding me? It, it, it has to come up because it seems like everybody relies on the police, like you said, to do, every single thing from the FD-12s, you know, because you, I know you remember when all that started with the FD-12 stuff, hey, um, the mental health crisis people are going to come out and they're going to do what they're supposed to do and the officer is not going to have, yeah, okay. But with CPAP, we get locked in there and couldn't leave because they were short manpower. <laughs> so we're like, hey, our, our, our deal is done. They wouldn't let us out. 
it wasn't us out. And we had issues with that uh, a few times. I know especially one day, and I'm like, how are you going to lock us in a facility? Our, our job is done. Oh, well, we short, so now you guys got to wait until we um, sedate the sedate the patient. Stuff like that, we would, we would always wonder, did management know? You know what I'm saying? Did you guys know that this stuff was going on and how yeah. it affected us? I Well, I can only imagine how it affected you, but I didn't know about that because I did meet with the director um, of behavioral health in reference to that of keeping officers in. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's those issues. And and you asked the question in the beginning that if I took over a police department as right. chief, and I talked about the listening sessions, but as I think about how the hospital details were like a thorn in my side, I would see if they had the issue about hospital details. If that agency had an issue about hospital details or in reference to the mental health, peace and officers had to be there for that. Like I would focus on, on those two things because those two things keep officers out of service the most. You're right. And, and that, that is the majority of the bulk of the questions I should say, people were asking me like, when you talk to her, ask her, ask her, does she know or did they know? You know what I mean? Did management know what was really going on about yeah. that? You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. it, it was just really bad, whatever. But Steve, like, I, I I really appreciate where you started and, you know, where you ended up and all. So what, what are your plans after, you know, what are your plans? Because, again, I know, I know you're too young to, like, just go off into the sunset. I, somewhere. You're going to be chief somewhere. I told you that. Well, I know that that is what you said, but it is ironic of how things change over time. Because when I started the police department as a cadet at 17, um, I had aspirations then that I would be the first female chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Then after we had our first female chief, then I said I would be the first black female chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. And everything I did in my personal and professional life was geared toward being a chief of police. And then as time went on, I became an assistant chief of police and things kind of changed for me. And I'm not saying that I have given up my hat in policing, but I would only go and work at a police agency where the mayor, the city manager or county exec who's ever hiring the chief of police is a transformational leader. And they really want to change the culture of policing right. because I know I have what it takes to do it and want and, and, and create an environment where people want to come work. Now I am firm, but I am fair and I want to make sure that I take care of the community, but the men and women inside. So until then, I will still just be a coach, a speaker, and an author, and um, just enjoy my life in retirement. Okay, that's that's fair enough. But I just think you got a lot, a lot left, um, and I think it would be cool because we don't have, we don't have that many people that think you know that way. As far as I care about my officers. Um, Again, I'm not picking anybody out or naming anybody. I'm just saying sometimes you have to say, I need to treat, you know, I need to treat my army well. 
I need because they're the ones that are fighting, right? They're doing the fighting. And I gotta treat them well. I have to. And um I just think sometimes we get so caught up in numbers that we forget that, you know, we already talked about it, that these people, these people out here working, it is a choice to take the job. But you like I said, you earned the right to wear that badge. And it I just think you should not be treated as as such as just, just a number. You know what I mean? Just a number. We can replace you, which you can. But again, and you notice when you when you lose a bunch of veterans, you you have a vacuum in the department. And that's when you start having, you know, younger officers with four or five years on that elite. It's not saying I'm wrong with that, but you know, again, a 20 year veteran from six and seven D is probably gonna know a bit more than a, a three or four year officer from the sex from the second district, you know, all around wide. So I, I look forward to that, man. I hope you do, you know, get a department in the area. I think you will. I'm listen, when it happens, I'm gonna be the first one to say I told you, I had you back on on the podcast and be like, hey, what happened? And you can tell me your whole vision for it. And like I'm yeah, I'm I'm your biggest fan. You know what I mean? No, I, I definitely appreciate that. I appreciate the faith um, that you have in my ability to be able to lead a department um, because everyone that knows me know that I believe in accountability, right? And I believe in accountability for myself as well. But you have to make sure, even with officers, and we're not talking about, and I just want everyone to be clear that we're not talking about the egregious behavior in Memphis or no. what happened um, with George Floyd, like we're not talking about in LA, like we're not talking about like those instances, right? We're talking about good police officers. And I heard yeah. today when someone was saying that they didn't believe that there's no such thing as a good police officer. And I was actually appalled because right. I couldn't believe it. I, but I think they've seen so many bad things that have happened. But what I want to do with the, the good police officer that comes to work, I want to remind them of their why, because right. I think sometimes we become jaded because we just do this over and over and over again, that we forget our why. Why did we want to join this police department or this profession? And yeah. so I think I have that to bring that back to, to people. And I think that people have a right to work somewhere where they're going to be treated fairly. I've been told probably almost my entire career that in policing, you will not be treated fairly, but I will continue to try because <laughs> I think that I think that everyone deserves that. Right. I think that if you looked at a situation and even if you applied for a specialized assignment and you didn't get the assignment, but the process was fair and I was transparent in the process. So you saw exactly what was needed. I mean, everyone had to go through the same, had the same qualifications and you were not selected, you know, maybe 10 people put in, it was only one slot. Yeah. Nine people are not going to get selected. But if the system is fair, but if it's because it's someone that's in my family or someone yeah. that I'm in some um, sorority with or some other club and now they kind of like circumvent a system and get in like that demoralizes you and everyone exactly. else that applies. So exactly. it's things like that that we have to look into, like promotions. How are people getting promoted in the agency? How are people being selected for special assignments? You know, making sure that all of that is diversified. There you go. 
Absolutely. That's why I said I, I see you somewhere, you know, being a chief somewhere. I see it. I'm telling you, I see it. And, you know, you just, you just, when it happens, you just hit me up and we're like, hey, I did it. And I'm like, okay. Okay. Hey, I don't know. Maybe it'll be, <laughs> maybe it'll be from your podcast. And I'll say like, hey, but I'm telling you, if you know that I have been nominated as a police chief somewhere, I'm going to tell you this and everyone that's listening, that is the police department to come work for, because oh, I, I will only go there. It's a certain criteria. They will be interviewing me, but I'll be interviewing them. Right. I mean, I've, I've given over 30 years in law enforcement. I deserve at this point in my life to go and continue a profession that I love, but make sure that we get it right. right. We have to get it right. right. Lives depend on it. You're right. You're right, Chief. I mean, like I said, I'm waiting. It's coming. Just, okay. you know, just put this. Hey, just let me know. Give me a real quick five minute interview before you take your oath, and I can be like, "Hey, see, see, she was on our podcast." But yeah, it, this thing is growing, and um, I'm I'm so happy you got on. Um, I appreciate it big time, and a lot of people were hitting me up asking me, like, you know, when you want to ask her, I'm like, I'm gonna ask her just questions. I'm not gonna hold back. Like we already discussed that. But, yeah, no, this would be great. I, yeah. I wish you could have it too, where people could call in and they could ask me questions, and then people can ask all their questions that they want to ask too. Like that would have been great because I don't know if you know, but I had um, an initiative ten minutes with the chief. Um, I didn't realize how overwhelming um, the responses <laughs> would be for for that. Right in right. my mind, I thought mm -hmm. it because I wanted to hear from people. I wanted them to be able to come in. And it was no chain of command. So you didn't have to worry about breaking a chain of command. Right, and right. you could tell me whatever you wanted to tell me. And I promise you that it wouldn't get back to whatever official, because that was the only way I could really know some of the things that were going yep. on. And some people didn't trust me to do that. And I understand why, but some people did. And I got valuable insight from mm -hmm. allowing people to come in and be able to say, hey, you need to look over here. Like, this is where your issues are. This is the reason why we're having this. And I will mention about the one voice, one message, right? And the reason why I have an issue with the one voice, one message is because it gives the appearance that everyone doesn't have a voice. Right. Like, I tell you what I want you to say and do, and that's what you have to do. Like, you can't tell me, Chief, I think we should do it this way. Because just because I outrank you, it does not mean that I have um, the best solution for the problem. And that's why I have the problem with the one voice. Yeah. Um, it just puts me in the mind of like a cult that a person can't have their <laughs> own thoughts yeah, um, to be. Able, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm telling you, it just makes right. me think that you can only follow the, the leader and, and what. I would want, and I'm not going to talk a hole in your head, but what I would want in, in a police department where I was at the helm is that everyone know that you can dream in that department. Like, because I think where people are missing it or leaders in policing are missing it, it's like it's only room for one dream in a police department, and that's the person at the helm. Yeah. But it shouldn't be that yeah. way. 
Absolutely. It shouldn't be me coming in saying, oh, Absolutely. my 30 years in law enforcement, I dreamed I wanted to do this. And here I come in. But a lot of things didn't change. Like you you have experience in different areas. How about everyone gets to dream? Like if you could dream to make this police department what you wanted it to be, like what what would one or two things be? And take that from people and the ideas and see if we can create a department where everyone is happy to come to work, not just me. Right. You're right. You're absolutely right. That's what I said. I, I might be uh, coming to your department when you when you get there. I'm be. I know you'll come <laughs> over. You're you're you switch and you will come on over. And yeah. some people ask me the question if um, I am like this. I, I think that well, I know I'm cut from a different cloth. I just am of just who I am. And um, I don't believe that I'm better than than anyone. And I never look down on people. And we're all the same, like all of that stuff. Right. That's that's in my core being like who I am. Right. right. But when you think about it, I was a detective sergeant in July of 2014. And by March of 2018, I was an assistant chief. That's that's, that's deep. Yeah. That says a lot because I yeah. think that part of it, some of my detectives like they ask me. Do I think that I am the way I am as an assistant chief because I was a first line supervisor just three and a half years prior? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like when mm -hmm. you think about that, yeah. that that's yeah. yeah, that that's huge. Yeah. Yeah, it is because uh it normally is huge is a huge gap between yes. that. So that is, you know, I didn't even know that. Where where were your detective starting at? At 40. Okay. See, I did I I didn't know that part of it. I did not yeah. know that part of it. That that that's a lot of studying and a lot of work. Yeah, I got like four promotions um, in, in that time. I finished my undergrad during that same time and got like four promotions. And my last wow. promotion, I was in grad school as a commander. I, I, I enrolled in grad school and then I got promoted to assistant chief. So I finished um, my graduate degree while I was an assistant chief of Patrol Services South. So that was a challenge, but it was worth it. Yeah, so. it was man. That's that's pretty impressive. Cause I I didn't know I I had I mean I knew a bit about the background, but I did not know that was two thousand fourteen <laughs> from two thousand fourteen. Yeah, four four years later, you were wow. That's that's pretty good. That is very impressive. So yeah, yeah don't give it don't give it up yet. You, you got you got a lot left to give, chief. Yeah, I, I believe you. I believe so. I believe the right police department is out there waiting for me. Like yeah. someone that wants what I have to give, that really want to change the culture of policing. I'm telling yeah. you, they will they will look me up. Because I'm, I'm telling you, we'll have no other choice but to do it. Like right. we have to right. do it. Yeah, at this point, because I don't think, I think the police reform thing is, I don't know what they're expecting out of that, but you can't really, in my opinion, what are you guys going to reform that you, I mean, we got body cameras, we got, it's so it, to me, it's the individual officer, what they need to do. And then it's that peer pressure part of it. And then it's also, like I said, I'm not going to say super better screening because you can't, because some things you can't predict, but like you said, they're all markers of if this dude, this officer has, four charges in the last year for brutality or for excessive force, uh, that's that's a pretty good indicator, right? So things like that, yeah, I have no problem with, you know, being uh, 
you know, admin checking into that or calling them to the mat or something like that before it gets or it, it became serious. So things like that, I agree. But I don't know what this reform thing, you know, to me, it just sounds like a lot of talking again. It's like, OK, we're going to do this. We're going to do it. And you're putting your foot on the neck of good officers, I think, with that, too. So it has to be something that's really um, good for everybody, I think. Good for everybody. Because good officers don't mind, you know, hey, you can do what you want. I'm going to still do my job. So, you know, we don't care. Like, all right, yeah, I got a camera here. I got a camera in the car. I got, okay, right? I'm going to still do my job the way I'm supposed to do it. So we don't care about that. But I don't know what else they can put in place, you know, call and call it reform. I just think sometimes it, it starts at the top. It really yeah. starts at the top. You know yeah, I mean? you know, because I believe that the a fish and, and it's, you know, some people say that a fish doesn't rot from the head first, but I believe that the a fish rots from the head first. And I think that when you see any type of organization that is struggling, I think that you have to look at the leadership in the organization. Like you mm -hmm. really have to, to look there. And when we were talking about like police reform, I'm not saying that it's things that we need to, that we don't need to change in, in policing. I'm not saying that at all. But what happened is people, politicians start making these knee jerk reactions right. and they actually made cities unsafe. Exactly. Right. That's what exactly. they did with a lot of different things. And one of the things that, that bothered me um, the most is because I felt like that the people who need the police the most didn't have a voice because no. they were not the people that were testifying at the city council. They were the people that were talking to me on the phone and emailing me or talking to me at community meetings. Um, there were people that were calling, feeling like their um, kids are unsafe at school. And then you had people saying, pull officers out of school. Right. Exactly. And, you know, other people are like, I can't send my kid to school without a police officer. Right. And so my question was, like, did you know about this? That you could have come forward and gave your testimony and why you believe that officers should remain in school. And some of the people that testified were, were not from D.C., did not have kids in exactly. D.C., exactly. or didn't have negative interactions. They just right. jumped on this bandwagon, bandwagon. Yep. and decided that they want yep. to say, oh, we're going to throw D.C. in the same boat as every yep. other place. Yep. Um, and exactly. that was dangerous. I'm telling yep. you that that was, was so dangerous. Exactly. And I do understand the school-to-prison pipeline. Like, all of those things, I understand that, right? And I knew how some educators was using... Um, police as disciplinarians or wanting them to be arrested and all this other stuff. But when I took over that bureau, you know, hey, I, I stopped that. Like, that cannot be the case. You cannot bring police into a disciplinary issue. Like, right. can't happen. Right. right. So it's, it's those things like that that you're, you're right. But I think that people have to have candid conversations about it. And it can't, people cannot have political agendas. Yeah, because there are real things that are happening to people out in community and is larger than you winning an election or yeah. some seat um, in council or somewhere like it's yeah. so much bigger than that. I agree. I agree. I agree. hundred percent because you hit it on the nose. Like, why would you pull 
You know how many school fights used to occur between Anacostia and Baloo on the daily? So why would you pull the officers out of those schools? I mean, are you kidding me? And it was just like you said, it was, okay, anything police, we're going to get rid of. We're going to defund it. We're going to do that. And it's like, no, wait. And and as you can see now, uh, crime is at all-time high in a lot mm -hmm. of cities, an all-time high. And I don't think people have, you know, it's like, it, it, what do you do now? You Can you put this, can you bottle this back up? Because you yeah. lost officers that retired early, that quit. You have problems with recruiting because nobody wants to do this job anymore. So what is, how do you fix that? How do you fix that? Because like you said, the politicians, a lot of the politicians, and I'm not afraid to say it, don't live in the areas that a lot of these crimes occur and they will never feel you know, they will never feel or, or, or know how it feels to be a victim like that, you know, or mm -hmm. have that shooting in your neighborhood three three times a week. Like, what's occurring now? It's like, what, multiple shootings now? Yeah. What do you do? It, it wasn't that bad. You know what I mean? It, we had crime, but it was like, okay, we kind of had a handle. You kind of knew you would have good days and bad days. Now you just... You just see it. You wait for the alert tone and you're like, okay, who shot now? It, and nobody seems to, I'm not going to say care, but it's like, we, well, we, I mean, I mean, we're going to stay on the police, but, but we're not going to, you know, the juvenile, we're not going to get, what do you do? What, what do you do? What do you do when the juvenile is committing a lot of the crimes now and you can't even hold them or, you know, you know, the, you know, the deal chief, you lock them up and, before you halfway up to youth division, they're like, somebody, oh, they're going to be diverted. And I'm not saying it, it was, you know, police fault or whatever, but it's like, what do we do? Because we got to make the lockup, right? You got to get him. He got two guns. He's shooting. He carjacks somebody. And then he's out the next day. What no. What do you say? What do you say to that that victim that, that had a car carjack? What do you say to her? You know, so that's that's my frustration and a lot of officers frustrations with, you know, these rules. And it's like hands off, hands off the criminals. And I, I think that could be looked at, too. Yeah, it, it, you're, you're yes, you're exactly right. Um, what cannot happen is the police department can't be the only part of the criminal justice system that's that's working. But what I say to everyone in the criminal justice system is we all have to do our part well. And I know that mm -hmm. there's parts in the police department that, that we could do better, but everyone else can do better with, with holding offenders accountable. Yep. And we could do better because my main thing, I mean, I have a pet peeve and, and my pet peeve is that an officer, a detective, you have to do your job and you have to make the case. Like you mm -hmm. can't arrest someone and if you don't have the case, right? You 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 have to have probable cause. You have to have the evidence. Right. You you can't go out and falsely arrest someone or make something fit like that is not what we do. Or you can't violate someone's Fourth Amendment rights or any of that. Like any rights, not at all of trying to make a case. Right. Because if you do that and then it get on that other end. And now your case is no paper and then they cite Fourth Amendment issues, then how does that look on you and the agency? So I just think that everyone has a part to to get better at. 
And if we all just concentrated on, I'm going to get better at my part, then I think as a whole, the system would get better. And even parents, the parental neglect oh, yeah. for parents <laughs> that their kids are just out yeah. at all times. I think we have to have some system to hold the parent accountable. Yeah. Like, where were you when your child was out here committing this crime? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I told you I'm big on accountability, yes. but everybody gets part of this accountability. <laughs> this, this is a big ship. This is a big ship and we all get a part of it. Because yeah. the police department can't be the only yep. part of this um this solution that's been held accountable. We can't. We just Ooh. can't be. Man, that's different in itself. Just to hear that, we've never yeah. heard that before. It's always yeah. the police. Police got to do it. Police. You're right, and that is parenting has changed. So I 100% agree with with you on that, and um, hopefully that that will change but like i said it's a cry everything is and i'm not gonna say it's not racism and and certain things that have occurred in dc whatever but you can't you can't like close your eyes to a crime just because an offender is black you can't i mean to me you can't do that like okay you you know they stay over in 70 we were stopping 80% black drivers. Well, 70 is like 98% black. You know what I mean? They never said that part. Yeah, no, it was over 90% of, right. of black drivers were being stopped. But what happened is, you're right, you look at the demographics, the number of people that live in, in 70. So that would make sense that, that it would be a high number. But yeah. if you have on the other side, for example, like 2D, maybe having, and please don't quote these numbers because I have no idea if they're right, but right, they have right. a low, a lower digit, single digit number of a black population there, but then you could have a 90% um, rate of stopping black people, but you only right. have a 3% um, of black people that live there. And that's something you need to look at because how is that possible? Right. That's huge. And that's okay. That's what I mean. That's fine. That's something you do look at, right? Yeah. That's fine. But it just it just seemed like that was a convenient excuse at the time to kind of like, uh, okay, officers, pull back, just, just relax, you know, on the track. And and it was like, man, every time we got a grip, I'm not gonna say a grip on crime, but it was like every time you saw some good progress it was always something that like slowed it down you know what i mean whether it was some city council person throughout some law or somebody did this or said this or an officer did something stupid and you know and it set us back so yeah i'm hoping that changes man i really hope that changes because like i said i love doing my job um and i enjoy still wearing my uniform and I enjoy teaching still and I enjoy the things that I do. So that, again, that's part of the reason for the podcast. So I can have a cute one, have a more uh, upcoming guests and that, that are going to, you know, dig deeper into um, some racial things. And I'm going to have you back, right? I'm going to have you back. And when I have you back, I will have the ability for people to call in so they can ask you questions and uh, I will not filter those questions. It'll be up to you to answer them, how yeah. you want to answer them. 
but I will have that ability. We're working on that. And uh, I'm going to have you back, Chief. Pretty, you know, Oh, yeah. soon as If I someone get that. wants to do it, I mean, hey, I, I'll be put on the hot seat to, to answer the questions <laughs> that, that people want to answer. I mean, want to ask and, what? and I'll answer it. Um, but lastly, um, well, this may not be lastly, but lastly, I want to talk a little bit about duty um, to intervene. Just a, a quick little thing on duty to Okay, intervene. sure, sure. I just want police departments that have the ABLE training or any type of duty to intervene Please make the culture welcoming where people feel like that they can intervene and there will be no retaliation for them doing so. Because I think that after George Floyd, a lot of departments um, jumped on, you know, the ABLE training. And I think that it's great training. But if you do not create the environment where people understand that it's OK for them to intervene and there will be no consequences for doing that. Right. then they won't feel comfortable with doing it. Absolutely. That's a good point. And I'm going to ask Yeah. you about that real quick. So if you were chief, we, we know that whole George Floyd thing went bad, right? It was wrong, right? But those other officers, to my knowledge, they were like brand spanking new out of the academy, right? Brand spanking new. Your FTO tells you, face the crowd, don't let anybody come this way. In your opinion, do you think those officers should have went to jail? Yes. Okay. Now, then again, Chief, we talking brand new, Uh, out of the academy I, I, I think officers. at the end of the day, I don't even have to be a police officer that I would have ran and stopped at, like not Okay. even being a police officer. I think it, it has to be like who you are as a person. Okay. Like, I'm not going to let anyone snatch the life out of you. Like, Right. I'm just watching you die. Right. Okay. And I mean, come on, S something has to kick in. I mean, I may die that day, too, because the police officer may kill me as well. But I guess I'm just going to die that day because what's not going to happen is I'm not going to watch you kill somebody. I <laughs> understood. Like, I'm, I'm not going to watch that. Right. And I don't care if one day, one second, you know, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That there's Understood. absolutely no excuse for that whatsoever. I mean, there was a loss of life that was so senseless. That all of those people involved, and I and I can't help but to play that in my head. I was like, could that have happened at MPD? Like, could that many officers be there and watch that and hear that and know that's going on and hear that the community crying out to say, stop, he can't breathe, you know, all those things, and no one does anything. I don't think. I, I, again, my opinion, I don't think so. You Yeah, got, you I don't got, think so either. yeah, Yeah. I don't, no, nah, I mean, that, I mean, MPD is one thing, but I don't see any officers having that, disallowing that to care. Like I say, MPD is trained pretty well. So I don't have that. I don't, I don't see that. Not saying it couldn't, but I just don't see on, on every scene I've been on where it's been some sort of, hands-on thing um I, I can be honest and say maybe once or twice it got out of hand where you had to you know pull an officer back or you know things like that but it was done and that's the thing it was done just because you're like no you're making it you know you're making it hard for me bro like no like enough and whatever but we were doing those things before way before this you know this incident occurred with George Floyd I just think like I said <laughs> it it doesn't get out there until it gets out there right something bad happens and you're like man we been, we didn't do this for all these years 
the correct way, turns out, but nobody cares because, you know, never happened with MBD, I don't think like that, right? I can't recall a, a incident like that. You may, but I don't can't recall an incident like that anyway, where it was just, you know, we had neighborhoods that wanted to fight and all that other stuff, but you we never had because normally they were we because that's the thing too. We would lock somebody in, we were always taught. Get them cuffed and get them off the scene. Right? That was that was embedded. Get them cuffed and get them off the scene. Not sit around the scene and just talk or whatever it was. No, let's get them cuffed and let's go. And in that 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 training I am I am grateful for because that helped me. And when when I became an FTO, I was like, come on, scene cuff, let's go. Let's get off the scene. And that works. So now hopefully, like I said, uh, like you said, that more training will um will come out of that, you know, these both both of these bad incidents. But uh, yeah, we're gonna be swallowing that pill for a while. But so are you gonna write another book? Are you doing another book? Well, I have a, a couple of different projects. Um, the, the first book that you're probably talking about, it is an anthology, Unapologetically Brave. So I am a co-author in that book. And then I'm a co-author in another book that's coming out that's Prisoners of War in Your Mind. But my big thing, I, I'm working on my book, right? My book is, is titled, I Arrived, Oh, So I Thought. Right. That okay. that's my book, solely my book. But what I learned from that is that in writing that book came a lot of emotions with right. being able to go back and unpack my in, entire career. And it's not that, you know, the bad, all bad things that happen, because I'm, I'm definitely thankful for my job at MPD. But just going back and telling your story and I'm not there anymore. So that was part of it. That was kind of making that progress slower. But a big project that I'm working on that I'm so proud of is my ladies in law enforcement book collaboration. Okay. It's, the title of the book is called Uncuffed Voices, the untold stories of a lady in law enforcement. Okay. Is so that various that, women and various women in, in the department. Yeah, various women for various okay. police departments all around the country. I'll even take all around the world if okay. I can get it. So there's no, um, we're not restrictive. And if you work ever in law enforcement at any time, then you can be a part of the anthology, okay. whether you retired, resigned, active, you could work at, you know, corrections, you know, so one of the federal agencies, right, right. wherever that is. I mean, I just think that we have a, have a different perspective and what is going to be is you are writing a letter basically to your younger self. And so this is not a book where someone is bashing their police department or right. someone, you know, inside the police department It's not about that. Like some women have stories about, you know, they wish they would have had kids earlier or later or even their finances that they wish they would have saved, you know, more or had deferred compensation earlier. Just all those different things that you're telling a woman who is coming into the department now is to say, hey, this is a resource for you. Right. Um, that you can look at and don't make, you know, this mistake or here's what I did and here's a solution to right. what I did. Like, you know, it's an alternate solution. So I'm excited okay. about that. I'm learning a lot about the whole book publishing and all of that process. I mean, hey, I spent 30 years in law enforcement. I had no idea that I would be in a whole editing, publishing, 
um, graphics for for a book. But it's been interesting to say the That's least. pretty cool. So when you when you get that when you get further along with that, like I said, I'm gonna have you back on so you can promote that. And by the time that comes back, I'll have you on video and you'll be on our YouTube channel because we we're launching that. It's actually active. We just haven't downloaded to it yet, but we're working on that. So we got a lot of interesting things where we can promote good law enforcement work and you know good management. Whether, like you say, you retired, female, male, whatever, and we have them on the shows, you know, so they can kind of, again, we can have a platform to show the world that um, we out here doing, you know, good things. And yeah, we'll we take our lumps, but we still go out here every day and do, well, you know, cool job. So I'm definitely yeah. going to have you back. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much. Possible. Thank you so no much. I definitely appreciate it for giving the relevant different perspective because you're right that the highlight is on the negative interactions with law enforcement and they are horrific, but I commend you. And I said that to you earlier, how proud I am of you for having this platform and inviting me to come on because so often when you're actually in the job, there are things that you want to say about certain things that you're just not able to <laughs> you say. Can't, right? Like you just exactly. can't, you just can't say it. Like you're sitting there watching this stuff unfold. Like, you know, this yep. is insane to me, yep. but, but yeah, yep. but okay. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. So I will be, I will be in touch uh, very soon and we're going to get, get you back. And um, I'm going to send you a, a version and a copy of this recording and uh, with a follow-up, uh, some follow-up questions, if you don't mind. Oh, okay. No problem. Okay. All right. Thank I appreciate you being on the show. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good night. You too.